it's a little embarrassing to admit, but when I was much younger, I played a stupid game with the gas gauge of my car. When the needle of the gauge touched E, or later when the idiot light came on, I'd gamble on how many more miles I could get, how far below E I could go, how brightly the idiot light could shine, before I actually ran out of gas. I don't know why I did this. But I did get as many as 75 extra miles out of fumes, and I only completely ran out twice. Once when I was in seminary and visiting my grandparents here in Huntington, I was on the 16th Street Road extension. I ran completely out of gas. I found a payphone. This was before, you know, cell phones. I found a payphone, called my grandfather, who thankfully was in town. He brought his C&O truck that he always kept a little gas in, put the gas in, didn't say a word. But when we got back to the house, he said, not the brightest thing you've ever done, is it? <laughs> and you would think I would have learned, but no, uh, in my second pastorate, in a little country road, this time in the middle of the night, I ran out of gas again. And it was on the walk, the long walk, in the middle of the night, down a country road to the gas station, that I finally gave up the game. I realized those Boy Scouts are on to something, you know, be prepared, which includes buy gas before you completely run out. Now, there's an old Chinese proverb that distills this wisdom much uh, b uh, more eloquently than buy gas before you run out. The Chinese proverb says, dig a well before you're thirsty. Dig a well before you're thirsty. Prepare for your needs before they arise. At 2 o'clock in the morning when the thunderstorm or the snowstorm strikes, knocks out the electricity, then it's too late to think about candles and matches and batteries and flashlights. Prepare in advance, dig a well before you're thirsty. And taking that idea, I want to suggest how important it is for us to decide what we believe about God and about life, and especially what we believe about where God is when hard things happen, to decide about those things before the heat is on, the stress grows overwhelming, and the pressure becomes too intense. Get some clarity about who God is and where God is and what matters most in life before the crisis strikes. In the last years of her life, the poet Jane Kenyon suffered from aggressive leukemia and debilitating depression. Jane and her husband, the poet Donald Hall, went to Seattle for specialized treatment and they rented and lived in a small apartment not far from the treatment facility. Here's what Donald Hall says about that time in their lives. We lived in an apartment on a street of the city but our only address was leukemia. 
We wrote and ate breakfast and showered in leukemia. We walked around the block keeping up strength in leukemia's neighborhood. We slept in leukemia all night, tossing and turning with unsettling dreams. And for me, at least, there's an emotional echo of Donald Hall's and Jane Kenyon's struggle and the suffering given voice in Psalm 102. These rhyme to me emotionally because this psalmist was mired up in trouble. He didn't have any life at that moment outside of his pain. Now, we're not sure what the root cause of his pain was, whether it was physical or emotional or somehow both, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we hear the intensity of his hurt and that we hear our own and that we hear the world's. My days, he said, pass like smoke. My bones are like a furnace. My heart is stricken and withered like the grass. I'm too wasted to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my skin. You can hear it, can't you? He was consumed by his sadness and grief, overwhelmed by discouragement and depression. Sleep eluded him. In some of the most poignant passages in all the Bible, some of the most poignant words in all of the Bible, he says, I'm like an owl of the wilderness, like a little owl in the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely bird on the housetop. Do you know how that feels? Alone in a desert of difficulty, surrounded by the debris of Wasted time and wasted opportunities and wasted gifts. Awake while the rest of the world sleeps. Weary but restless. Exhausted but unable to find rest. In the middle of that kind of night, the psalmist poured out. And you, I need you to, I know you're always listening closely to me. <laughs> But just in case you have a tendency to check out and think about lunch and all that, this next little section is a little complicated, so hang with me. In the middle of that kind of night, the psalmist poured out his frustration with God. In this prayer, he dared, in fact, to blame God for his pain. He said, I eat ashes like bread and I mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. You have lifted me up and thrown me aside. God has broken my strength in mid-course. God has shortened my day. Now, I'm grateful that the Psalms contain words like these, honest, anguished expressions 
of anger and bewilderment. I'm grateful that these words are here because whether or not we are able to admit it, even to ourselves, and whether or not we will ever allow ourselves to say these things out loud to God or to someone else, we feel them or we fear them. That somehow God is the cause of our trouble and pain. In the middle of the night, in the middle of a tragedy, a crisis, or a disaster, people really do sometimes fear that God has arbitrarily singled them out. So if my daughter is injured in an automobile accident, or my son becomes a drug addict, or I develop heart disease, it must be because God is angry with me. If I lose my job or become paralyzed by depression or my marriage begins to unravel, it must be because God is frustrated with me. When our reserves are depleted, when our nerves are shot, when the pain won't end, when the answers won't come, and when hope is nearly gone, we can feel like God has lifted us up and thrown us out. We can feel like God has broken our strength. God has shortened our days. Psalms like this one give us permission and give us the language, give us permission and language to say what we fear we could never say. But here's something really important. Not everything a psalm says is something a psalm teaches. Not everything a psalm says is something a psalm teaches. These are the raw anguished words of a person being honest with God and honest with the worshiping community about his fears and frustrations, his doubt and his darkness. These are his true feelings. But they are not necessarily the truth about God. Does that make sense? Not everything a psalm says is something a psalm teaches. These are the psalmist's true feelings. But that doesn't make them the truth about God. So we may worry that God is punishing us, but that doesn't mean God is. Shattering experiences have a way of distorting our view of everything, including God, and they can convince us that God is against us. But that doesn't mean that God is. Worries and fears can be liars, after all. Dig a well before you're thirsty. The police station, the unemployment line, the divorce lawyer's office, the emergency room, the funeral home,
are not great places to do theology. I've heard some perfectly awful and untrue things said about God in those kinds of places. Now, if you've said these things, go light on yourself. And if you've heard these things, you've probably been wounded by them. I heard a preacher one time guilty as far as I'm concerned of ministerial malpractice say to a family gathered around the bed of their dying patriarch, if you pray hard enough and believe strong enough, God will heal your daddy. I've heard someone well-meaning but misguided say to a parent whose young baby just died, God must have needed another angel in his choir. A recently divorced woman say, I've decided that God just doesn't care if I'm lonely. A father said to his struggling son, God must want you in jail because you're not good enough to live free. Awful things said about God because people haven't thought through in advance what they believe about where God is when trouble comes. I wince and weep when I hear these kinds of things, but I rarely argue, not then. The middle of the night is not the time, not the best time to decide what God is like. Dig a well before you're thirsty. You remember the Gospel of Luke tells us about a time when Jesus spoke to his disciples about the conditions and costs of being a disciple. He said, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish All who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Count the cost in advance. Now, on one level, this sounds like just be sure you have a solid business plan. But I think there's much more going on here. I think Jesus is saying, Be sure, be sure you have what you need to live the kind of life you feel called to live. Life will make harsh and hard demands on you sometimes. Stress will come. Pressure will mount up. Crises will occur. So before, before, make up your mind and your heart. Now, I know I've said this to you before, but after almost a year with you, you probably know I really only have two sermons. I just preach them over and over again. And, and, and so this is that sermon where I say, you know, God is like Jesus. So I want to remind you about that again. On the night before he died, John tells us, Jesus gathered his friends in the upper room, He's trying to get them ready for his departure 
And one of them says, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. So Archbishop Ramsey of Canterbury, two or three archbishops back, said, In God, there is no unchristlikeness at all. God is like Jesus. And that's the best news I know. Because that means that whatever else we don't know in times of trouble, we know that God relates to us like Jesus. Which means, friends, if you can't imagine Jesus saying it to you, then God didn't say it. And if you can't imagine Jesus doing it to you, then God didn't do it. God is like Jesus. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. The psychologist John Neefsey said, one helpful way to discern whether a particular thought or message comes from God is to ask whether it sounds like something someone who loves you would say. And if it doesn't sound like someone, what someone who loves you and knows you would say, then it's not God. As you know, two and a half years ago, I entered my own season of crisis and uncertainty. And it's not by any means finished. And in many ways, I've been living in the middle of a dark night myself. But this is, this is a testimony of grace, not any kind of comment, comment on me or some sort of wisdom I might have. But by grace, when this crisis began, I already had a well from which I could drink. And I had learned to trust these three things. One, God really is as good and loving as Jesus said and showed. God really is that good. And God really does love us that much. So in the middle of the night, I can feel like God I can feel like God has lifted me up and cast me aside. I can feel my own bones hurting and wasting away. But I don't have to fear, because of Jesus, that God is the source of my pain. God is as good and loving as Jesus made clear. Second, some of you will disagree with this, but, you know, agreement's overrated. 
God doesn't always get God's way in the world. Things don't always go the way God hopes they will go. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, after all, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's will were already being done on earth as it is in heaven, if everything that happened was part of God's plan, then we wouldn't have to pray that prayer. I prefer instead to think that God, by grace and mercy, makes awful things part of God's plan, not that they are caused by God. God doesn't always get God's way. So I don't believe for a minute that God somehow intended those people in Nice to die this week. God didn't somehow work through the terror of a madman driving a box truck down an open street with a gun in his hand. That's not God. That's a sign that the world is broken and needs God, okay? That's the second thing. God doesn't always get God's way. Not at first. But God loves us too much to waste our pain. The third thing, God is always with us. I admit to you that there are days when the only thing I really know, I mean know in a way that sustains me, is nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us. Amen.